Okay, we're going to step out of Colossians this morning to talk about Palm Sunday. So I'm going to read from John chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Uh, This is down in verse 20, sorry. Um, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The story of Palm Sunday is told in all four of the Gospels, and you may or may not know that not every story of Jesus is recorded in all four. John especially diverts from the first three. And John's story of Palm Sunday is the most brief, uh, the most streamlined, whereas Luke's story is probably the most dramatic. It's in Luke's story where Jesus said, if I hush the crowd, the rocks will cry out. Uh, Big drama there. Um, But prior to any gospel, there was a message hidden in the Psalms that's worth looking at. And this is in Psalm 118, where we're told, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. There are three things that are interesting about this. The first is um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this quote regarding the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this quote is placed in Holy Week. Holy Week begins today. It's It's the week from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And all of them have this quote from Psalm 118. The next thing of interest to me is that the prayer in Psalm 118, save now, in Aramaic, or or save us, in Aramaic is Hosanna. And that's what they were crying on Palm Sunday. Hosanna. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is right here in Psalm 118. So the, the cry of Palm Sunday is a quotation from this psalm. The third thing that interests me is in the psalm, it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Uh, We will rejoice and be glad in it. 
And it's making reference to a specific day. Now, I'm sure that, that we can say that every day, and there are optimist friends of mine who probably do say it every day. Um, I'm not of that ilk, so um, I save it for special occasions. Uh, well, this is the day. Um, but the, the point is that the, the psalmist does have something specific in mind, and it is this joyful celebration. In Luke's, and I want to stay with this is the day. In, in Luke's gospel, after Jesus enters Jerusalem, we're told that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And he says, but now it's hidden from your eyes and you'll suffer. You know, uh, instead of peace, you'll have uh, war and destruction. I, I saw this years ago, uh, that Psalm 118 is so present in Palm Sunday <clears throat> that I couldn't help but see uh, it is being prophetic. And uh, sometime later, I shared it with my dad. And then he forgot that I was the one who shared it with him. And he used it all the time without giving me credit, which is fine. <laughs> because if the truth gets out, you know, who cares how it gets out? But, but anyway, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, he's saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. If only you could see what belongs to you today, what could be yours. But you don't, you don't know the things that make for peace. Jesus was saying that something historic was happening, that a door had been opened, and with it, a unique opportunity. That it's right now. If we were there, and if we, if we had ears to hear, if we, if we heard it, we would be looking at each other and saying, something's happening today. Something we've been waiting for, something we've been praying for and longing for. This is it. It, it. it has come. And I don't know what they would have expected or what we would have had, have expected if we were there in that culture at that time. But on this day, the Hosanna prayer could have been answered. He, he could have saved them. On this day, Jerusalem could have fulfilled its destiny rather than run from it. On this day, God visited his, his people, but they did not know. And, and I have chosen the uniqueness of on this day for our meditation this morning. And so I, I, want, to, I want to chase this meditation a bit. <clears throat> Now, um, I can imagine saying, but wait a minute, Palm Sunday is not unique. It happens every year. And we've celebrated Palm Sunday in previous years, sometimes with small branches, sometimes with large branch decorations. In fact, Palm Sunday is not really that special. It's not the main event. It's only a prelude to the main event, which will, of course, be the cross and the resurrection. And, and we cycle through Palm Sunday, like all the other holidays. It, it comes and it goes, it comes and it goes. It's not unique. How can you say this 
is the day. And it, it's fairly easy for us to adopt this cynical view of time. Uh, you have heard, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's kind of uh, a cynical outlook. This is the dreary perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has this, this focus on life under the sun. What, what does that mean? It's, it just means the material existence of the worlds that we create, the societies we create, um, apart from God. It's that we only calculate by the things that exist under the sun. And, and our aspirations don't rise higher than that. And so we read in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. It's already happened. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Um, but um, someone argues, what do you mean there's nothing new under the sun? Cell phones are new. Uh, my grand parents never had a cell phone, never had a cordless phone. So how can you say uh, nothing is new under the sun? And I think that the teacher would respond, well, you have the latest model of technology and you've adapted to it, but you stay the same person. And, and think about it, we're in the fourth month of a new year. And how different is this year from last year? Um, do you think? Um, how different is the 21st century from the 20th century? We still have wars. The wealthy still vastly outnumber the poor. The, the well-fed vastly outnumber, or pardon, are vastly outnumbered by the starving. We're still vulnerable to greed and all the other vices. How much has human nature changed? How much have we changed? Well, we've got new toys and trinkets. We have new diversions and entertainments. I mean, binge watching is a fairly recent um, you know, a way to experience television uh, thanks to the, the COVID pandemic. And, and we still do not know the things that make for peace. And we keep missing it. We still do not know what is in this day that the Lord has made. We're, we're still pretty blind. I had a friend, he's passed away now, but uh, he was a pastor. And if anyone loved books more than I love books, he was the guy. And he frequently recommended to me a book that he, was, he had just finished reading. And every time he would say, this book changed my life. Uh. But his saying that never changed. 
in other words, his life may have been changed, but he, he constantly said that same thing, and he said it about every book he recommended. Um, and at first, I thought, I've got to have that book, you know, because I want my life to, to be changed. And um, I might have been interested, I might have been informed, but I wasn't changed by, by those books. And I wonder, how much can you change if, if you change every time you read a good book? <clears throat> Visit a cemetery and note the boundaries of a human life, because it's, it's all around you. It's inscribed in stone. Two dates, the date of a person's birth and the date of their death. And that's what happens under the sun. Um, and Ecclesiastes talks about a poor man who saved a city, yet no one remembered that poor man after he died. He was forgotten. It's like swimming in the ocean. You, you create a wake, but uh, the water closes behind you as you swim, and there's no evidence that you were ever even there. And, uh, and that only evidence might be those numbers inscribed in stone from then to this. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes has a, another message relative to time. Of course, there's a famous passage in chapter 3, to everything there's a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, etc. But in, in another place it says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The, the word eternal is a concept small enough to fit into our brain. I mean, we can say the word eternal and we can know its definition. That means something like unending time, which isn't really accurate. Um, and though we, we can know the, the concept as an idea in our minds, we really cannot fathom eternity. Uh, it's beyond our ability to grasp. The, the Hebrew has a great way of expressing this in the word olam. And olam means hidden. And it's used of eternity. Eternity is that head, hidden space we really cannot comprehend. If, if you've ever done this, and as a child I, I tended to do this kind of thing often, uh, my, my brother, who could be very irritable, my little brother one time said, numbers are infinite. And I said, no, they're not. How can numbers be infinite? How can they just, you know, only God is infinite. Numbers aren't infinite. And I went to my dad and said, Dad, numbers aren't infinite, are they? And he said, well, yes, they are. And, uh, and so then I stopped believing him, too. <laughs> I can't trust anyone. Um, we, and, but, we, but I would try to think of, you know, I, I would imagine what was before all of this? What was before God said, let there be light? What was before the Big Bang? What, you know, that, according to those who espouse the Big Bang, there was nothingness. And then there was a pop. 
and this intense radiation and explosion into the universe today, but try to go back before that or, or go into the future as far as you can and imagine the sun burning out and then imagine all the stars dissolving. And if this is an expanding universe, think of it contracting all the way back to where there's not anything. And then what, what is there? We cannot imagine nothingness. We can only imagine something. If I say, well, the borders of our universe, okay, what's beyond the borders of our universe? Astrophysicists say nothing. Nothing exists beyond. Well, how can there be borders then? If, if the universe is all that is, how can, how can there be nothingness? And we can't, we can't think of nothingness. We think the word, but we can't imagine what it is. So if we go into the future, at some point, our mind fades out. If we go into the past, at some point, our mind fades out. It's hidden. It's olam. It's, it's the unknown before and it's the unknown after and that's the Hebrew word for eternity. Some people call it the vanishing point. There's a line in the Psalms worth contemplating. Blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, from along to along, from a beginning we cannot imagine to an, to an ongoing that we cannot imagine. Um, if I may, I, w- I want to digress for just a, just, just a moment. Um, I prefer the word everlasting to eternal. Uh, for, and for a long time, I've, I've preferred everlasting over eternal. And it seems like, aren't they just the same thing? But if you, if you think for a moment, not necessarily. Something can be eternal and yet have a quality that does not last forever. You can chew a stick of gum for several hours, but the flavor is only going to last for a minute or two. You can chew gum forever, but the, but the gums, the flavor is not everlasting. Everlasting is, is not just something exists for eternity, but all of its quality continues also. And, and the quality of everlasting life, to me, just means more than eternal life. I don't think I'd opt for an eternal existence if it did not include the lasting experience of God himself. In fact, I know I'd opt out. Okay, so uh, God allows us a, a sense of an eternity but he doesn't put it into our heads, he puts it into our hearts, the teacher of Ecclesiastes says. And, and I'm tempted to say, God does this just to mess us up. Um, oh, I'm going I'm to put eternity in their heart, and they, they won't be able to comprehend it, but they'll think about it, and we'll bug them, and I'm just going to mess them up with this. And, um, and uh, eternity... 
is not like time. And I think I'm saying that eternity and time are not the same thing, that eternity is not unending time. Maybe, but see, you can measure time, and we do, seconds, minutes, days, weeks, and so on. There's no way to measure eternity or any part of eternity because there's no starting point. You say, well, from this point, let's measure how many cycles of this or that. Um, And there's no end point, so you can't say, well, let's measure back from there. So you say, well, let's start right now and measure from now. But eternity is always now. It never was or will be. It's always now. So if you start from now and you measure until now, what have you measured? Nothing. Um, you have no measurement because it's still now. Eternal life is a different kind of life than what you and I know today as we live and breathe. It's not our normal experience of passing through days and months and years. So to have eternal life is to have abundant life, is to have uh, an excess of life that would seem like excess to us, is to have an enhanced experience of life. It's to have a, a whole other experience of life than living in time. Okay, let's, let's go back to the first Palm Sunday. Uh, I don't think Jesus was thinking all these things that day, but um, he was aware of them. There were Greek tourists who found uh, Philip, which is a Greek name, by the way, not a Hebrew name, uh, but he's one of the disciples. They found Philip and they said, we would like an interview with Jesus. Can you work this out? And he went and got Andrew, and then they went to Jesus and said, well, there are these Greeks. You know, they look like philosophical types. They'd like to talk with you. And what's Jesus' response? He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Or he's saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. John mentions Jesus' hour several times in his gospel. It begins when Mary tries to, um, well, she doesn't just try. She manipulates him into providing wine for a wedding feast where this poor couple have run out of wine. And Jesus tells his mother, my time has not yet come. Or not my time, my hour has not yet come. Later on uh, in chapter 7, again in chapter 8, there were attempts to arrest Jesus, but they were unable to arrest him because his hour had not yet come. Then um, with his brothers, they said, go up to Jerusalem for the feast. You know, if, if you want to make yourself known, go up. And he says, well, you can go up because it's always your time, but my time has not come. And there he uses the Greek word kairos. Until now, he has used the word um, ora, or hora. uh, But here he uses kairos, that that 
special moment, that opportune moment, that, that window in time. And he says, it's not, it's not my kairos. And this is his hour, his, his, his kairotic moment, if you will. And um, now on this Palm Sunday, his hour has come. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. So it's been building to this moment, and now the hour. And what John is telling us is that a moment has arrived on this day that's unlike any other moment. And it's different because it does not belong to the normal flow of time. It's not just, oh yeah, Palm Sunday has come around again. Oh yeah, it's the feast of Passover and we're back to Jerusalem. And, and John is saying, but no, this is the hour that has been building until this moment. And it's unique um, because the world did not produce it. I mean, you know, the, the earth did not... Um, bring this season around the way the four seasons come each year. In, in some states, I hear about four seasons. Um, but this, this isn't a natural flow of the world, and it's not the work of any person or any committee or construction crew. Um, this is unique because eternity intersects with time. Because... In this hour, the hour is a divine hour, not, not measured in human time. And such hours belong to God entirely. This hour is, is all God's doing. And no one knows these hours except the Father. Jesus says, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. Only the Father and, and God has these hours perfectly timed. Paul will say this in several places. In, in Romans, he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, he tells Timothy, or, or pardon me, Titus, at the proper time, God manifested this word of salvation. So uh, th- then in other places, he talks about the proper time and how God chose this time. And he knew it all along. He chose this hour. These hours do not consist of literal 60 minutes. And if we know anything about John's gospel, we know that very little of what Jesus has to say, very little is literal. The hour of Palm Sunday is the same hour as Good Friday. In fact, um, just before Good Friday, uh, Monday, Thursday, when Jesus uh, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved them fully. He loved them to the utmost. So Jesus now knows that his hour which was Palm Sunday, is also Good Friday, that it covers this whole period of Holy Week. And in this last night, 
with his disciples, Jesus spoke another word to them. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. All through John, Jesus uses figures of speech, and all through John, he's misunderstood. He's confused people. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Figure of speech. The Samaritan woman, drink from this water, you'll thirst again, but I'll give you living water if you just ask. To the disciples, I have food to eat you don't know about. Figure of speech. He'll say, I am the bread of life. Figure of speech. I am the true vine. Figure of speech. I am the door to the sheepfold. Figure of speech. All the way through. And people are misunderstanding him, taking him literally. The disciples said, well, has someone brought him something to eat that you know, we don't know about? And, uh, and he has to correct them. But he does this. He, he confuses them, as it were, in order to reveal to them God's higher thoughts. That we talk and think at this level, but there's a meaning here we need to discover that we will discover through intuition, not rational examination or analyzing. When he talked to Nicodemus, he says, I've been talking to you about earthly things, figures of speech. And you, you don't understand, you don't believe. Well, what would happen if I talked to you about heavenly things? What if I, I, I used a speech that conveyed real heavenly things? What are you going to do then? You won't get it at all. That's why Jesus did not use some kind of heavenly speech that none of us can decipher or understand. He used normal speech to create images and pictures and experiences of what it is he was talking about. That here he's telling the disciples that the hour is coming when I'm not going to use figures of speech anymore. I'll tell you plainly about the Father and you'll be able to grasp it. That's just... I have a friend, we have a friend, several of us have a friend. His name is Michael Herbert. Michael, when he was 18 years old, he's now retired from the post office, but when he was 18 years old, he was in a motorcycle accident in which for a period of time, he had no signs of life. Uh, He was in a coma for several weeks. He suffered extensive neurological damage. When he came out of the coma, he could not speak, he could not eat, he could not walk. He had to learn these things all over again. But he had an experience of heaven, and he's convinced that, that that's what he experienced. Now, over the years, Michael would, would come up to me after one of my talks, and he'd say something about the passage, and he'd say, you know what that really is? And then he would talk out of his experience. And you know what happened? He always ran out of words. He can never find words. He would use images. He would say, when I was brought before God, I felt love. 
like a river flowing through me. It was in me, but, but through me. I, I felt not only was I loved, but love went in all directions. And, and then he would just stop talking because there's nothing else he could say. And we would get impressions and feelings, but we would not have any idea what he was talking about, you know, what, what he actually experienced. Because he'd tell us, you know, that doesn't really say it, but... So when did that happen? Jesus says, an hour is coming when I'm going to talk to you plainly and not in figures of speech. Did it happen when, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, around verse 45, we see Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and how they spoke of him? Is that when it happened? Or was it when he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit? Or, or the day of Pentecost. I mean, John had 60 years to mull this over before he wrote his gospel. And he, he may have had some specific instance in mind when Jesus began to speak to him plainly and he could, he could hear it, he could receive it. I don't know that he could talk about it. I don't know. Maybe Jesus was saying, when you die, then with your experience of heaven and the Father, I can talk plainly. Then you'll get it. There'll be no need for parables or figures of speech. But I, I don't know what, what John's talking about, but it's exciting to think of a graduation day when Jesus speaks plainly and will understand him. And, and I don't know that our rational mind will be involved at all. I think our rational mind will say, I'm going to wait outside. And, and, you know, the intuitive spirit will just be absorbing it. It's like, I know now, I know, I know, I know. In Jesus' last prayer, which is mostly for his disciples, he prayed to the Father, the hour has come. And I have manifested your name to those whom you have given me. You know, now they know you, he says. How did Jesus manifest God's name to them? He didn't give them a a new name for God in in Hebrew or Greek or any other language. You know, it's not like he's giving them a new name. And he did not give them an old name, but he gave them the eternal name. Yahweh, I am. And they did not need to learn that. They knew from scripture that Yahweh had this this eternal name, I am. Um, and, And that's how he is unlike everyone else. We all have a was, an is, a will be. But God, with God, it's the eternal is. There is no was in God. There is no will be. It's always I am. And Jesus made God's name or God's person, because that's what a name is in Scripture. It's all that a person is. Jesus manifested God's name to his disciples 
By being to them, I am. In one place, maybe the most dramatic place, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, I was before Abraham was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. As the book of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he, he made I am. He made Yahweh known to them by speaking the words of I am, by doing the works of I am, by loving them with the love of I am. And what the disciples received through all that was not information, not rational or theological information, but a relational knowledge. They came to know the Father. And a relational knowledge is like the knowledge an infant has of its loving, nurturing mother. The infant could not possibly put that into words in the you know, second or third month of its life. And if it did, film it, put it on Facebook, and you'll, be, you'll, you'll get a million likes. But the infant still knows it, that relational knowledge. So Jesus said, those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them. If anyone loves me, he or she will keep my word, and my Father will love him and her. And we shall come and make our home with them. If you, if you love me, you'll love my father. My father loves you as he loves me. And we'll come make our home with you. The way I see it this morning is that Palm Sunday is everything or it's nothing. This is the hour. This is the day. This is the moment when Jesus becomes our hour of hope. Karl Barth, um, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, said, In Jesus, time and eternity meet. Hence, everything depends on this, that Jesus Christ speaks to us who pass on with the fleeting times. There are people and times to whom Jesus Christ becomes manifest. And this can be one of those times, and we can be those people. Heaven is breaking into this, this Palm Sunday hour. Can we wake ourselves up? Well, how do I do that? Slow down and pay attention. Slow down when you brush your teeth. Slow down when you tie your shoes and pay attention to that moment. You'll be amazed at how it brings your focus to the present hour. And then pause to breathe. Move slow and take pauses. Breathe. Then look and listen and taste, and smell, and feel. 
You'll wake up. You'll get it. Let's stand. May the Lord God be with all of us this week. Waking, waking us each day to the hour of his presence, to the eternal now, to a wider universe than, ones, than the ones our bodies inhabit. May we find joy in him this week. And may we find that relational love of Jesus that reveals to us the name of the Father. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.